Um, and I'll go ahead and kick us off. Nice. Uh, uh, hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today for the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. Our second read-through, we're moving into the civilized capitalist machine. Um, I have no, no announcements today of any sort, uh, but the big things, as I always say, uh, follow us on Twitter, DNGQC on Twitter, or DGQC on Patreon if you want to support what we're doing. Uh, we are also slowly putting together our divagations conference. If you have any interest in contributing to the study of wandering, that's the point. So please uh, join us. We'd love to have you as a part of that, whether it's uh, writing, facilitating, helping us think through things, or just listening to us, whatever it might be. Uh, we're slowly getting all that together. Uh, as we move into the civilized, cap civilized capitalist machine, we have just finished discussing the Erstat, the despotic state and the form that it first takes, the, the underlying representation and form of production that is required for us to seemingly have a society, this underlying element. And we move finally into the civilized capitalist machine. Uh, the first paragraph kicks it off nicely, but this is a discussion at this point about the new socius, the movement from the despotic to this element. And uh, there's a lot in here. Every paragraph is going to be significantly worth us taking some time. Uh, going through, do not hesitate to ask questions, write them in the chat. Uh, everyone should be able to fully talk. Uh, please uh, take part because this is where we start getting into the real meat of this. So uh, I'll go ahead and read and we'll just continue. The first great movement of deterritorialization appears with the overcoating performed by the despotic state, but it is nothing compared to the other great movement the one that will be brought about by the decoding of flows. The action of decoded flows is not enough, however, to cause the new break to traverse and transform the socius, not enough, that is, to induce the birth of capitalism. Decoded flows strike the despotic state with latency. They submerge the tyrant, but they also cause him to return in unexpected forms. They democratize him, oligarchize him, segmentalize him, monarchize him, and always internalize and spiritualize him. Well, on the horizon, there is the latent Erstat, for the loss of which there is no consola consolation. It is now up to the state to recode as best it can, by means of regular or exceptional operations, the product of the decoded flows. Let us take the example of Rome. The decoding of the landed flows through the privatization of property, the decoding of the monetary flows through the formation of great fortunes, the decoding of the commercial flows through the development of commodity production, the decoding of producers through expropriation and proletarization. All the preconditions are present, everything is given, without producing a capitalism properly speaking, but rather a regime based on slavery. Or the example of feudalism. There again, private property, commodity production, the monetary afflux, the extension of the market, the development of towns and the appearance of manorial ground, rent in money form, or of the contractual hiring of labor, do not by any means produce a capitalist economy, but rather 
a reinforcing of feudal offices and relations at a time at times a return to more primitive stages of feudalism and occasionally even the reestablishment of a kind of slavery and it is well known that the monopolistic action favoring the guilds and the companies promotes not the rise of capitalist production but the insertion of the bourgeoisie into a town and state feudalism that consists in devising codes for flows that are decoded as such and in keeping the merchants according to marx's formula in the very pores of the old full body of the social machine hence capitalism does not lead to the dissolution of feudalism but rather the contrary and that is why so much time was required between the two there is a great difference in this respect between the despotic age and the capitalist age for the founders of the state come like lightning the despotic machine is synchronic while the capitalist machine's time is diachronic the capitalists appear in succession in a series that institutes a kind of creativity of history a strange menagerie the schizoid time of the new creative break let's talk through uh, to me this paragraph as i read through it is having the discussion about this idea that we kind of went from feudal to one form of economy to another that it's this popover or even that uh capitalism itself had elements throughout all of this i think it's uh, sort of one of those things get, gets lost in a lot of debate bro conversations as well when they start talking about what is actually capitalism, what is the setup and the way things are produced and organized. And very often people go back on uh, the idea of it's private property or it's uh, corporations or it's these elements, things that have, as he talks about through here, things we have had through you know, centuries, if not millennia, in one form or another. So what elements of these are actually the things that make it up? When does, when does it start? When does capitalism come in? The, what is these, what is these things are making? Is it capital or is it uh, something sort of between? And it's this transitory period is what it seems he's pointing out to me where we're talking through that the dissolution of feudalism is what led to capitalism, that there is this period and switch as the despotic age and the capitalist age sort of exchange, but it's not any of these single elements that does such a thing. Again, sort of pointing towards their project of a universalized history. That's uh, how I read through this, if that makes sense. So in some respects, the uh, capitalism is a continuation of the um, uh, despotic machine, which is submerged, right? But it's uh, the Earth stack is submerged in uh, these different forms of uh, political um, ideology, and whether it's uh, socialism or democracy or whatever, it just submerged. But it's uh, but it's almost it, what he calls a latency latency of these of the despotic uh, machine. But it's there all, uh, and continues to be there. Yeah, these elements don't go away. Uh, and he and he talks sort of through them these elements that we have that come from that, but where Rome had a regime based on slavery, we have all of these pieces. The preconditions are present. Everything is given without producing a capitalism, properly speaking. It's a, uh, what are the, uh, what, what actually makes it? What actually produces this capitalism? What actually makes this secondary element sort of come about? And that's this, this question he's raised, they're raising here is is what is this element what is the thing what is the elements that make it capitalism and not these other bits 
uh, they've been hinting sort of towards this a great deal, but it's the the decoding of flows, the 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 nature itself of these things uh, take a while. They they the decoded flows strike the despotic state with latency. They submerge the tyrant, but they cause him to return in unexpected forms. These decoded flows that take place underneath the despotic, which uh, we went through, there's still decoded flows. They just all flow through him. They they cause the despot to go away, no longer the pharaoh. Now he returns, uh, either they democratize him, like we've done in America, they oligarchize him, which they've done in Russia. They segmentalize, monarchize. He becomes back a king, a president, whatever it is. But there is that despotic element. The The horizon has that latent urstat, the, at the, the latency that follows is kind of one of their big sort of points here. I'm interested in the other sorts of decoded flows that are mentioned besides capitalism. I mean, obviously, Marxism is a overarching theme here, um, socialism, the like. But um, I like that it's kind of obscure that there are varieties of flows there. That kind of leaves it open for dispute or uh, interpretation. Yeah, the the flows that basically he's talking through uh, all the elements and things that flow within any socius, even the despotic, the monetary land, money, fortunes, uh, commercial flows, commodity flows, labor flows, uh, literally all the parts that sort of make up what is the production of a society. And we can think of it very much in the same way as the flows of desire within the unconscious. I mean, they're they're intended to be more than slightly similar and so as we code desire and as we do such things there's elements as things sort of move forward and the sort of danger with that is as these flows move and become coded why we code them how they get coded what is sort of doing the coding and how they're getting sort of laid up as such is is the fascinating part uh and to your point the the types of flows the way that in this case, desire, it being desire flows, but in the socius, there's there's many flows. Uh, understanding all of them and talking through how they get decoded or recoded and sort of move through that is fascinating, too. I think it's almost limiting to say that it's limited, that it's only desire flows as well. I think that it's, I think that, you know, <clears throat> uh, obviously the movement of uh, merit and necessity, those like, that's like just the most basic uh, flows of the body, uh, body without organs, uh, of any kind of body, you know, uh, how, how so? Well, for instance, just the, uh, need that's produced by, uh, maybe, uh, society, I don't know, uh, the socius, the, so the need that's produced by the socius and the shortcomings therein, and then, you know, the, uh, the forthcoming, uh, fulfillment of those needs uh, that the body, uh, mandates, uh, I think is a, uh, I think it's like that, that, that it doesn't just, it doesn't just, uh, pertain to, uh, what we desire or what is given to us. It's like, it's like also like, you know, what is, it's kind of a self, it's a self promoting self creation, self-determinant, uh, 
element. It's uh, I, I feel like I'm really having diarrhea of the mouth right now. But uh, you no, know, no, it's so, like so, uh, so when I when I say desire, I mean it specifically in the sense that they're using throughout uh, this book as well as uh, a series of other pieces they've written, which is the core sort of essence of movement within the unconscious, the thing that is both the power of and created by inside of the way the desiring machines function. So there is only within the unconscious the flows of desire. They may change their representational state as they sort of emerge into the subject and beyond the subject where they enter into the socius. But the functionality and production of flows and how anti-production sort of works within that from chapters one and especially two uh, very much are about desire being the only thing that comes from the bottom up. And when I say bottom, I mean base, uh, the plane of eminence. Whereas within the socius, uh, we can think of uh, the same essence, but almost uh, uh, its own version of the process where the desiring machine desires, it connects, it produces desire, records desire, and then in such, the subject is formed in the miraculating machine. This process as it moves, enlarged to the next level if we just raise it up and stamp it again all of the desires of the subject hit become the subject and at that point the flows that happen from the subject out are constituted and those flows then become coded by the socius in the same process it's the subject goes out connects disconnects does different things in that the flows are made uh, in the moment of connection disconnection they generate, they move forward, they're recorded in not the BWO, but instead the socius in this case, and the large scale sort of uh, secondary oppressions come in uh, from that state. Well, be just like the BWO can be our servant or our master, uh, the socius has the exact same ability. It's what organizes ultimately the flows of production. Um, so it's a very specific li lineage I'm talking through here when I say that. Right on. Yeah, I, I, uh, I actually just went over this chapter uh, last night. So this is, uh, this is, this is fresh for me. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's, we're, we're kind of hitting into uh, the, the second half of that, because again, um, and I've now, I, I don't think I've read a lot of secondary sources who have the same interpretation I do on this at this point. But what I know that a lot of the secondary sources agree on is, this idea of the two regimes. And so when we talk through and we spend the first half of the book going through the machinic unconscious, how it functions, how desire is produced, where it's produced, how it gets formed, how representations steal away uh, or, or trap that desire, uh, malform it, and then the subject is made. In this very same sense, we have this sort of subjectivity of the society and the socius that is produced in very much the same flows. So when we're talking about these points of elements or these representations of things the, that he's running through here uh, to be very very specific the socius that existed within rome had a great deal of the same flows there's still the flows and decoding of monetary flows uh decoding of commercial flows private property and landed flows uh the the renter class all of that but ultimately those pieces didn't produce capitalism and that's, I think, the argument that this paragraph is making is we like to talk or commonly people talk uh, about how the free market or private property or this produced capitalism or made us into a capitalist society. And the argument in this is saying, like, look, we've had these pieces. These are not the things that produce capitalism. Capitalism as a socius, as a alternate method of organizing 
the flows of of uh, the society and the socius that it's controlling, organization of production, these elements are still there in previous socii, uh, uh, specifically inside of the feudal system or Rome or these other bits. So they're not what produce capitalism. Instead, we need to really spend some time talking through what produces a socius and allows it to sort of exist because nothing exists in a uh, a transcendental way. Capitalism didn't just spring forth from Zeus's forehead. It's there's a there's a thing here and a break, a creativity break, the schizoid time of the new creative break, as he's talking about, uh, sort of at the end here. And this is kind of his big reference. Uh, the line, hence capitalism does not lead to the disillusion of feudalism, which is very much a common sort of tropey thing. That's what I was taught in high school. That oh, it's a good thing we got capitalism because that ended all of these bad things. But rather the contrary, disillusion of feudalism led to capitalism. And that is why so much time is required between the two. We have huge swaths of time with other pieces being formed and other things coming about. Sorry to ramble a bit. That's a this paragraph is a is a pretty extraordinary sort of breakdown of that type of thing. I think that's what I was trying to say, but <laughs> no, no, it's it's. Um, I think that's what I said. I said that. <laughs> that literally, my my part time job is is reading through this and talking about it. So, um, like, it's and I'm I'm probably not even speaking about it entirely correctly in and of itself. Or uh, there's probably smarter things to say around this. This is not like a, a finality document of here's our Bible, but more pointing at these things. It's, I keep going back to this, the allegory that for me, for Oedipus and how it organizes and controls us uh, within capital, I believe the Erstat has the same sort of representational quality of haunting in the shadows and waiting, but there's nothing I have that backs that up. I just think it's a good idea and it seems to match intuitively. So there's a lot of shit. If I say stuff, I may be completely wildly off. So don't, don't worry. Uh, it's a, this is a, uh, it's a whole thing. Like I like to tell people, go back and listen to the first five or six recordings that we had over a year ago, and I'm genuinely clueless on this. I just happen to have been fortunate enough to spend a year and a half doing nothing but this, so it makes it easier. Um, well, I'm glad you're doing it. Thanks. Well, trying to, and uh, keep coming, because uh, forcing me to explain stuff, and then probably someone will listen to this as we get, and they'll come to the Discord and tell me, why I'm wrong, which is great. And then I get to learn a little bit and argue with them. And then we all come out a little bit better is the hope, at least for me. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating little sort of bit that they've got here. And uh, it's worth jumping to the next sort of smaller uh, paragraph. I'm going to read through it really quick because it kind of continues that thought I was running with. Because uh, we're talking at this point, the, the disillusions uh, at this point of the, the elements that made up the feudalistic society, the dis disillusion of feudalism that led to capitalism. Uh, the disillusions are defined by a simple decoding of flows, and they are always compensated by residual forces or transformations of the state. Death is felt rising from within, and desire itself becomes the death instinct, latency. But it also passes over into these flows that carry the seeds of a new life. Decoded flows, but who will give a name to this new desire? Flows of property that is sold, flows of money that circulate, flows of production and means of production making ready in the shadows, flows of workers becoming deterritorialized. 
The encounter of all these flows will be necessary, their conjunction and their reaction on one another, and the contingent nature of this encounter, this conjunction and this reaction which occur one time, in order for capitalism to be born and for the old system to die this time from without, at the same time as the new life begins and desire receives its name. The only universal history is the history of contingency. Let us return to this eminently contingent question that modern historians know how to ask. Why Europe? Why not China? Apropos of ocean navigation, Fernand Bradell asks, why not Chinese, Japanese, or even Muslim ships? Why not Sinbad the Sailor? It is not the technique, the technical machine that is lacking. Isn't it rather that desire remains caught in the nets of the despotic state entirely invested in the despot's machine? Perhaps then the merit of the West, confined as it was in its narrow Cape of Asia, was to have needed the world, to have needed to venture outside its own front door. The schizophrenic voyage is the only kind there is. Later, this will be the American meaning of frontiers, something to go beyond, limits to cross over, blows to set in motion, non-coded spaces to enter. The, the full decoding of these flows is kind of the point here, the, the conception where private property becomes its own flow, not that we're coding it as private property and the flow comes in, it's like, oh, we got all this land, we're going to code it as such but it's the fully decoded flows of such a thing freely able to match and go up against the free flows of money and production and all these elements that coalesce, they only need to one time, and then now we have capitalism, this contingent moment. Uh, I have to make a comment on the, there's a whole bunch of stuff in here that um, I know Gehring and a handful of other people on the server uh, shudder a little bit at the not just some slight tinge of Orientalism, but the fact that they're going off of, uh, we will say, some dated work when it comes to understanding uh, the world of Asian culture, China, Japan, and all of that. Uh, one of the reasons we know historically, uh, one sec, a jet is going overhead, well, and it flew away. That's easy. Um, one of the reasons that, uh, uh, why not uh, Chinese, Japanese, or even Muslim ships, um, the, there were one of the really fun parts of India, and specifically how capital ended up conquering India during a more feudal time with the East India Company, is uh, India uh, found it cheaper because the East India Company and British ships offered to uh, rent their ships effectively or rent their navy to the area to defend India. And so as such, and they never bothered to build their own navy. Uh, there's these really weird sort of moments throughout history um, like such a thing that helped kick certain things into certain directions. And I'd love if someone had a better sort of grasp or understanding of such histories to be able to like really correct some of this. The sentiment I don't think is wrong. I think the facts are, but I don't think the sentiment is terribly wrong. This idea of the old system dying from without the need for um, exploration to be a sort of drive and the fact that the only movement forward, the only type of voyage, the frontier, is only schizophrenic, because by nature you don't know the thing. It can't, you can't go on a paranoiac voyage into the unknown. Like That's the opposite, uh, is I think kind of the joke they have here. So yeah, um, maybe not in relation to all of the Orientalism 
stuff uh, but uh, an association i get here is and uh, i i posted uh, this already in the chat because i'm currently rereading michel serre's the parasite and uh, it really helps to have read other stuff like this i would say um to to understand it and uh, it really much reminds me of his notion of this um, universal exchanger of something like a general equivalent that is money, for example, in the capitalistic system, because it is not something that has a value to itself. It is not material. So it is not something sacred anymore um, or something that belongs to a specific realm, something that, that isn't... Um, that is untouchable in this sense, but but it has this tendency, uh, as we see here with uh, in in the the emergence of the capitalistic system, that something or or better to say anything in the despotic state becomes slowly uh, decoded. Everything gets uh, on the same level, on the same plane, becomes exchangeable. By that, gets ripped off its um, sacred. Um, values of its material aspects uh, anything can stand for anything so uh, by that um, it has this power of making everything equal but uh, everything becomes tasteless in uh, a specific sense as well so um, it is this blank thing in a, in a exchange that only lives for itself to consume everything around it because it has not this this intensive relationship anymore it, it just tries to expand and expand to keeps this circulation going that uh, goes faster and faster because uh, there is no um um ex uh, not exchange but then there are uh, no more gifts in this sense in in a purely capitalistic society a gift in the sense of um for example marcel moss ideas or, or something uh, other French uh, theorists would it, talk about. Even worse, there's uh, only debts. This. There's only debts. Yeah. Yeah, there is not uh, anymore this this genuine social aspect to it. There's only this 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 total blank and debt exchange to it. Well, there's, and with that, because it, it's a wonderful connection to make uh, anyone, Michelle Sarah, I, I don't think I could recommend an author more. I've been rediving back into a few texts. Um, the the idea of this universal moment and the decoded, this is this decoded flows is the reference to what Triad's talking about, spot on. It's uh, everything, if you look around you right now, we live in a place where you could just assign a number to a thing. And when I say that, if you have a computer or a device in front of you that's worth 100, 500, 1,000 things, like dollars, like everything, Every land is decoded. It's it's just the flows of it. Oh, that's uh, four hundred thousand dollars. That's six hundred thousand. Everything becomes universalized under this one regime of representation that is the dollar, and that universalized element is the thing that allows the decoded flows. Because now it's not that I have a piece of land. Um, my dad's uh, my dad used to say, "You don't buy a house, you buy a home." Um, but don't if you don't believe in say landlords. Uh, and such things you're not you're buying not a house you're buying a home conversely the decoded version of a home would be a house or ultimately the fully decoded version of privatized land is dollar amounts this is worth this much this is worth this much and that's how they move through society it's 100 percent what triad's talking about it's a fascinating sort of shift as 
capitalism gets born because we get to have this, all the flows come together into one thing, and that is capital. All flows ultimately just become capital. So you're There's saying that, that originally the, uh, the desires were coded, right, uh, according to social relations and so forth, but capitalism um, decodes those and quantifies everything according to uh, this uh, debtor and credit uh, you know, uh, relationship and, uh, and it's quantified into um, dollar amounts. Yeah, it's it's uh, uh, fuck. That's the next paragraph. Uh, I'm just going to let you lead me right into it. I'm going to read the next paragraph now. Uh, decoded desires and desires for decoding have always existed. History is full of them, but we have just seen that only through their encounter in a place and their conjunction in a space that takes time do decoded flows constitute a desire. A desire that instead of just dreaming or lacking it actually produces a desiring machine that is at the same time social and technical. That is why capitalism and its break are defined not solely by decoded flows, but by the generalized decoding of flows, the new massive deterritorialization, the conjunction of deterritorialized flows. It is the singular nature of this conjunction that ensured the universality of capitalism. By simplifying a lot, we can say that the savage territorial machine operated on the basis of connections of production, and that the barbarian despotic machine was based on disjunctions of inscription derived from the eminent unity. But the capitalist machine, the civilized machine, will first establish itself on the conjunction. When this occurs, the conjunction no longer merely designates remnants that have escaped coding or consummations consumptions as in the primitive feasts or even the maximum consumption in the extravagance of the despot and his agents. When the conjunction moves to the fore in the social machine, it seems on the contrary that it ceases to be tied to enjoyment or to the excess consumption of a class that it makes luxury itself into a means of investment and reduces all the decoded flows to production in a production for production's sake that rediscovers the primitive connections of labor on condition, on the sole condition, that they be linked to capital and to the new deterritorialized full body, the true consumer from whence they seem to emanate, as in the pact with the devil that Marx describes, the industrial eunuch. So it's your fault if... Uh, it felt like, JK, that paragraph basically was exactly like answering what you were talking about and going through it. Tell me if I'm wrong, but that felt like a like almost direct. And it's the thing that I find, the, one of the things that I love about this moment also is we start talking about, uh, again, to go back to how the unconscious and the machinic nature of it is intended to be, uh, we're, we're in when we're all one and we're talking about the regime of the, the molar versus the molecular, uh, which we will get a lot more into uh, very shortly. But when we talk about how desire moves and desiring machines are part of the unconscious, here they say very clearly, uh, the conjunction in a space takes time. In this place, do decoded flows constitute a desire? A desire that instead of dreaming or lacking, which is kind of a, a despotic or the old way of uh, how sort of a subject would deal with a desire that exists uh, constituted post-subject, 
uh, actually here produces a desiring machine that is at the same time social and technical. This is the the social or technical machines of the socius. This this is one of the things that's very unique of capitalism that by having these flows and this moment created, there's a new flow and this sort of combinatory nature of it uh, is itself its own sort of social machine. And as such, just like desiring machines has many parts, fits, breaks, starts, uh, all these things that it's connected to, but ultimately this larger thing plays itself on the conjunction. It sits there, it waits, it waits for this, all of these things to sort of come together, this imminent unity that he talks about uh, here, which I love that, that phrasing. Uh, and ultimately, this production for production's sake that comes out of that, the industrial eunuch. And there's a quote from Marx I'm going to uh, go find the footnote of, but I'll, I'll let uh, someone else speak for a moment. Hmm, I guess for me it comes a bit more together now because uh, before that uh, Deleuze and Guattari are talking about this history of contingency and that the encounter of all these flows will be necessary, their conjunction and their reaction on one another. So it's like at first all of the coded flows uh, get pulled together uh, to the center of the despot. They come um, to some extent in this... Um, uh, almost in this gr uh, gravitational uh, force um, encountered with each other, so they clash together. They have to to manage uh, their their different fl different flows with each other. And at a specific point, uh, all of these dynamics become more powerful. Uh, and this this soul production and this pure crossing of different flows becomes more powerful than the the spotic power itself and it gets overthrown by this and then uh, this this attracting force becomes uh, more like an expensive force because there is no despot anymore there's only this this vague desire for expansion for more flows for more exchange and circulation uh, in this uh, solely um yeah, energy of, of uh, just producing more and more. And I'm going to read a little bit from, uh, from a little bit of that uh, Karl Marx guy. The need for money is therefore the true need produced by the economic system, and it is the only need which the latter produces. The quantity of money becomes to an ever greater degree its sole effective quality. Just as it reduces everything to its abstract form, so it reduces itself in the course of its own movement to quantitative being. Excess and intemperance come to be its true norm. Subjectively, this appears partly in the fact that the extension of products and needs becomes a contriving and ever calculating subservience to inhuman, sophisticated, unnatural, and imaginary appetites. Private property does not know how to change crude need into human need. Its idealism is fantasy, caprice, and whim, and no eunuch flatters his despot more basely or uses more despicable means to stimulate his dulled capacity for pleasure in order to sneak a favor for himself than does the industrial eunuch the producer, in order to sneak for himself a few pieces of silver, in order to charm the golden birds out of the pockets of his dearly beloved neighbors in Christ. He puts himself at the service of the other's most depraved fancies, plays the pimp between him and his need, excites in him morbid appetites, lies in wait for each of the weaknesses, all so that he can then demand the cash 
for his service of love. Dear friend, I give you what you need, but you know the conditio sin qua non. You know the ink in which you have to sign yourself over to me. In providing for your pleasure, I fleece you. That's the, the industrial eunuch in Marx. A wonderful piece. I love that last bit especially. Specifically, that is from the Economic and Philosophical Manuscripts of 1844. Uh, Human requirements and division of labor under the rule of private property is the section. Uh, Thank you. uh, Actually, Marxist.org, by the way, if anyone wants to ever find anything Marx wrote, they have a wonderful archive that's very easy and quick to search. Uh, but there's the link, second and third paragraph. is. Uh, but the whole thing is worth reading. It's a great, it's, I mean, he has so many great pieces, but this is one that uh, I like because I much prefer whenever I hear Fox News say the producers, uh, which is a uh, Ayn Rand term, the creators, the job creators, whatever, all I can think is industrial eunuch. And uh makes it easier to tolerate Bezos when you think he's a eunuch. It's kind of funny. <laughs> Thus, the rocket ship being shaped the way it was. Yeah, I mean, it just helps. Just it just fits a lot of things that are happening. <laughs> Had to build himself a giant dick because he is an industrial eunuch. The ultimate lifted truck. There you go. But but to go back that uh, to the 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 part really the well we were answering uh, J.K. sort of with this section the. Thing he's talking about here again and they go back to it this isn't just that there are decoded desires that's not it that's a part of it for sure but it de- decoded desires have always been there uh specifically the conjunction that takes time at that conjunction that that moment this is where capitalism sort of sits the machine sits at that conjunction where these desires all these flows come together and right there at that moment where labor flows and tech flows and creative flows and land flows and blah 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 and all that crap whatever um whatever it may be all those things come together in that conjunction right there that that moment i I think of a the prism and it's almost a reverse of that all of the different colors of the spectrum coming together to a singular white light and at that moment the prism that's the nature of this social technical machine this this element that is bringing them together, that conjunction is what they're talking about, that all of the elements have these exceptionally decoded flows. And everything gets reduced ultimately to production. Production for production's sake, as they say in quotes. Um, as long as everything's linked back to capital, like we're, we're done, we're on the other side of the veil at that point. Uh, Anything can be added. Doesn't matter. Slavery can be added. And it has been uh, to capital. That's great. That doesn't matter. Labor's labor. Uh, we're on the other side. And all that matters now is that things get linked to capital. That's, that's the big deal at this point. Uh, it's no longer the pieces. Once that ultimate mass of decoded flows has come together and the, the machine has been created, we're in it. There you go. Doesn't matter at this point. Have fun. Any thoughts, comments, anyone else, please? At the heart of capital, Marx points to the encounter of two principal elements. On one side, the deterritorialized worker who has become free and naked, having to sell his labor capacity. 
on the other decoded money that has become capital and is capable of buying it. The fact that these two elements result from the segmentation of the despotic state in feudalism and from the decomposition of the feudal system itself and that of its state still does not give us the extrinsic conjunction of these two flows, flows of producers and flows of money. The encounter might not have taken place with the free workers and the money capital existing virtually side by side. One of the elements depends on a transformation of the agrarian structures that constitute the old social body, while the other depends on a completely different series going by way of the merchant and the usurer, as they exist marginally in the pores of this old social body. What is more, each of these elements brings into play several processes of decoding and deterritorialization having very different origins. For the free worker, the deterritorialization of the soil through privatization, the decoding of the instruments of production through appropriation, the loss of the means of consumption through the dissolution of the family and the corporation, and finally, the decoding of the worker in favor of the work itself or of the machine. And for capital, the deterritorialization of wealth through monetary abstraction, the decoding of the flows of production through merchant capital, the decoding of states through financial capital and public debts, the decoding of the means of production through the formation of industrial capital, and so on. I'm going to assume that means no one has any questions at all and everyone completely understands every part of this, which is good. It's very good. Really, it is a continuation of what we have been talking about and continuing to make the point that it's not just any one of these two elements and he's really trying to drive this point home that it's this hyper contingency again history isn't something that just sort of happens there's these deeply contingent moments that allow these bursts and move movement forward and it's not just that we have labor on one side and capital on the other uh that's great we probably had that at another point uh, a lord telling a jester dance for me and throwing coin at him is effectively the same inter interaction that's not at all what we're talking about. It doesn't work the same way. It doesn't operate at a societal level in the same way. Uh, these, these things have probably been side by side before, uh, virtually, I think he says. One of the elements depends on the transformation of the structures. We've got to change those. The other depends completely on a different series going by way of the merchant and usurer as they exist marginally in the pores of this old social body. The, the shift of usury, which was even something that was seen to be gross, uh, once upon a time and beneath uh, the holy people and all of that. Um, the, there's a lot of these changes. He's, again, talking about the hyper-contingency sort of of these things. Am, am I close there, Ben, Trad, anyone I'm generally? Eh? Yeah, I would say so. And in this paragraph, it becomes clear that both of these principles are not coming from nowhere, but it is, again, this succession and this development of these these accelerations almost of already uh, existing tendencies in um, the ways things uh, happen before although there's there's still uh, some kind of phase shift because uh, the the worker gets tutorialized and by that he becomes free and naked so so a worker that m might have been working on a field or for its own um, livelihood or the that of the despot for generations now has to work in the city at 
uh, in a factory and does things he 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 couldn't uh, would have never imagined and is just replaceable and can produce anything be, uh, because he just has to do very minor uh, and mind-numbing tasks that are just split up uh, through so many workers and there's this this sort of alienation to it yeah and then this decoded money that uh, is flowing more and more and just there to be exchanged and not anymore just buying something to to live from let us consider more in detail how the elements come together with the conjunction of all their processes it is no longer the age of cruelty or the age of terror but the age of cynicism accompanied by a strange piety the two taken Together constitute humanism. Cynicism is the physical eminence of the social field, and piety is the maintenance of the spiritualized Urstadt. Cynicism is capital as a means of extorting surplus labor, but piety is the same capital as God capital, whence all the forces of labor seem to emanate. This age of cynicism is that of the accumulation of capital, an age that implies a period of time precisely for the conjunction of all the decoded and deterritorialized flows. As Maurice Dobb has shown, an accumulation of property title deeds in land, for example, will be necessary in a first period of time in the favorable conjuncture, at a time when this property costs little, the disintegration of the feudal system. A second period is required when the property is sold during a rise in prices, and under condition that make industrial investment especially advantageous. The price revolution, an abundant reserve supply of labor, the formation of a proletariat, and easy access to sources of raw materials, favorable conditions for the production of tools and machinery. All sorts of contingent factors favor these conjunctions. So many encounters for the formation of the thing, the unnameable. But the effect of the conjunction is indeed capital's tighter and tighter control over production. Capitalism, or its break, the conjunction of all the decoded and deterritorialized flows, cannot be defined by commercial capital or by financial capital, these being merely flows among other flows and elements among other elements, but rather by industrial capital. Doubtless, the merchant was very early an active factor in production, either by turning into an industrialist himself in occupations based on commerce, or by making artisans into his own intermediaries or employees, the struggle against the guilds and the monopolies. But capitalism doesn't begin. The capitalist machine is not assembled. Until capital directly appropriates production, and until financial capital and merchant capital are no longer anything but specific functions corresponding to a division of labor in the capitalist mode of production in general. One then re-encounters the production of productions, the production of recordings, and the production of consumptions. But precisely in this conjunction of decoded flows that makes the capital the new social full body, whereas commercial and financial capitalism, in its primitive forms, merely installed itself in the pores of the old socius without changing the old mode of production. This is a critique to me of the definition of capital and what capital is, and to have a discussion about how to fix or stop capitalism or whatever it is, we have to be able to sit here and define it. And their argument here, as it has been for the last few paragraphs, and I tend to follow through this is not simply saying it's having money it's 
buying things, it's private property, it's selling property. It's like these elements are things that have been around. It's there's more to it that makes capitalism have the power it has. Uh, and specifically, it's the appropriation of uh, flows and the production itself, the organization of it that makes capitalism what it is and how it functions is how I read through this. Um, there's some great little lines in here we can go through, but that's the gist, I think. Anyone else have a different take? Hmm, hmm. Yeah, I agree, because uh, as they write uh, at the end, but precisely in this conjunction of decoded flows that makes of capital the new social full body, so it is something that takes over the, this, this whole um, yeah, social body, and, and uh, as you can see in other fields in our uh, late capitalistic society, uh, everything becomes decoded by this and and everything uh, gets appropriated by the uh, logistics or or the logos of uh, the capitalistic mindset so to speak or of this notion of production for production when you see uh, how politics operates uh, mass media uh, even science and art uh, everything becomes more and more industrialized and capitalized in this sense uh, there's merely uh, uh, overabundance of rehashed ideas this uh, and this diachronic aspect that was described earlier um, that there is not solely this this production for someone's own sake but but for the system as a whole uh Boskard says uh curious about what he means uh, with the difference between financial capitalism and industrial capitalism. I don't think I'm getting it right, but it makes them seem mutually exclusive. Uh, it sort of is, okay. Um, so a quick kind of like a economic history lesson, right? So you have uh, back in the, the 1960s in America, you, you have the dollar, it is backed by american gold right like boom done uh but you also have uh this establishing market that is trading more or less virtual dollars for barrels of oil uh and th this this sort of like second currency has become like the 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 de facto default currency upon which all international banking transitions are based. And it creates sort of like this, uh, like second, like fiat capital market. Uh, eventually we, we end the like, uh, material backed currency in America go on a fiat dollar, but it's still the same thing. Whereas the, the money in your wallet is different than the money being used to finance venture capital. The, w the velocity of that money is different. The way that it moves through the market is different. What it does is different. Like uh, your money is still money that is based in and around like representations of production and like uh, transferring material resources from person to person and sort of acting as a stand-in in that kind of commerce, but it's still not the same as like uh, financial capital where the dollars are more or less completely divorced from anything. And the most important 
aspect is the velocity of the dollar. That's a great explanation of it. Uh, a way I might also say, and I wonder if you'd agree, Ben, is industrial capital still almost has a mediator involved when it comes to how capital utilizes labor. We're talking about a switch where financial capitalism, capital directly owns all of it. So the, the, the shift is is significant. That's that's more how I am understanding. Am I, am I close, Ben? Your explanation was just great. I just want to ask if my wording is okay. I I mean I think we're saying pretty much the yeah. same thing. All right, cool. Making sure because it's 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 such a fascinating switch and it's it's a tough one for people who like the last sixty years like the capitalism I've known my whole life. I'm forty. Uh, the capitalism I've known my whole life hasn't like it's changed, but it's generally been financial capitalism. I came up during Reagan and Reaganomics and that sort of change. Before that, it was a different, it was, it's different. It's a different type of capital. There's a, a handful of really amazing books on it. Um, I want to say um, Lazzarato has actually written on it very well. The Violence of Financial Capitalism, I want to say is the title. Crap, I'm going to have to find it. That um, goes into the distinction pretty significantly. There we go. Um, I guess like the, the one line that keeps tripping me up is that it says that Intel capital directly appropriates production and Intel financial capital and merchant capital are no longer anything but specific functions corresponding to a division of labor and capitalist mode of production in general. I just, I've, I've never seen financial capitalism as a specific function. It seems to instead be a, uh, almost a contestant of industrial capitalism at times. Um, it's less maybe a question about the text and more about its applicability to the present. So I might hold off for the next uh, paragraph that might inform a little bit. It's actually a very good point and a great, I'm not sure I have an answer off the top of my head. Um, so Christian Marazzi, by the way, Christian Marazzi is the one who wrote Violence of Financial Capitalism. It's a wonderful summary of financial capitalism. I have it open. I'm looking for a section, I think, answer. Yeah. Um... The use of the uh, the term production of consumption, right? Is that uh, a reference to um, like manufacturing, you know, consent, um, you know, manufacturing desire? I think that's a Noam Chomsky term, manufacturing uh, consent. But it's uh, it reminds me of also the idea of of, uh, of uh, you know manufacturing or um, you know um, you know creating creating desires for. Uh, for the consumption of goods before they even produce. So to go back to Bostgard's question, the, when we talk about capital as a gigantic socius, and we are here, we're not talking about it as a functionary or a singular machine. We're talking about the concept of it actually organizing all flows uh, in the same way that uh, effectively, Oedipus organizes a great deal of flows of desire that move through or anything within our unconscious. The, the socius organizes all flows, but we don't get to the point of capital being the socius, capitalism, as he's saying here. Uh, the full machine doesn't get assembled until capital fully appropriates production, and that includes financial capital and merchant capital are no longer anything but specific functions corresponding to a division of labor in the capitalist mode of production in general. It's these last two words I think are important to my understanding of the sentence. The essence of financial capital can't be a component or an empower thing that is able to itself directly control 
labor or other elements, uh, just like merchant capital, and, uh, if we want to go there, be, or industrial capital, or any of these elements as well. Uh, you know, merchants in these elements have always been part of production, and they're the ones who effectively become the moderated element between capital. Capital gets moderated through somebody who is the merchant, who is the one who then moderates it, codes it, changes it into something. It needs to be direct. And we have moved into, and it's, I've understood the term financial capital, financial capitalism, um, specifically to be this larger new socius and this form. I think the usage here is a little bit different and more the, the financial capital is a direct line at the banks or um, investment houses in general. Um, the term as a lot of what Marazzi writes, I think is an evolution of this. Again, the times have shifted. Uh, in this time period, capital wasn't a thing that wholly subsumed everything and controlled everything. Financial capital is ultimately, if we want to talk about like the king of all kings, it is the thing that owns all of the formations of production within our society. Uh, it's all done for that. It's not a thing that people foresaw in those days, especially pre-Reagan. Um, there was the banks and the investments over here, merchant stuff over here. Investment didn't even cross. In most countries, it, it didn't for a very long time, but even in America, uh, investment didn't cross over into banks directly or into merchants in the same way that it does today. Uh, so I think the reference here is less to the financial capital as the term I'm saying, and more them aiming at the banks or merchant capital are no longer anything but specific functions corresponding to a division of labor in the capitalist mode of production. Does that make sense, Post? Uh, to read both, uh, yeah, because there were financial crises in Deleuze's time, so I don't think they would have been completely surprised by 2008. They're not speaking about it specifically here. I think they wouldn't have been surprised by it happening, but I think, again, the, the financial crises that happened back then weren't global in the way 2008 was. I mean, even the dot-com explosion that sort of took down a lot of people in America wasn't even close to what 2008 was. That was a global meltdown of a financial system that was like it was it was a wholly different beast and again so hyper connected and so indebted to capital as a thing itself that it kind of stepped beyond what they're talking about into that 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 step where really capital has directly appropriated literally everything we call it financial capital because ultimately the finance sector is at the king about all of that stuff um and the one who's sort of uh, you know, controlling those flows, if, if there is a such thing, or the, the, the machine and how it's built, perhaps I think would be a better way to say it. It's the machine that's currently uh, winning, maybe might be a better way to put it. Yep, that makes sense to me. And I think that I'm, I'm satisfied with my understanding of it at this point, uh, which is nice because it actually kind of is, is you know, food for thought, not a... Um, a discrepancy in the text or a discrepancy in my understanding, I guess, which is even better. That's a great question because it's one that I think I'd, I'd, I would recommend. I was just reading through and kind of got a little bit of insight on that. Uh, Christian Marazzi's The Violence of Financial Capitalism. It's a semiotext series, tiny little book, 100% worth purchasing. It's totally PDF'd everywhere. Um, we'll, we'll toss it up in the server. Um, with phenomenal piece that really talks through that as well. Um, one of the one of the really big important lines. I mean, there's so many great lines in this paragraph, um, but 
after all that, everything we've talked through, the division of labor in general, one then re-encounters the production of productions, the production of recordings, and the production of consumptions, but precisely in this conjunction of decoded flows that makes of capital the new social full body. Whereas commercial and financial capitalism in its primitive forms merely installed itself in the pores of the old socius without changing the old mode of production. This line and set of three elements here, the production of production, recordings, and consumptions, uh, these will come back. I just want to make sure I sort of put a pin in that so everyone sort of notices. These, these elements will come back. Even before the capitalist production machine is assembled, commodities and money affect a decoding of flows through abstraction. But this does not occur in the same way for both instances. First, simple exchange inscribes commercial products as particular quanta of a unit of abstract labor. It is abstract labor, posited in the exchange relation, that forms the disjunctive synthesis of the apparent movement of commodities, since the abstract labor is divided into qualified pieces of labor to which a given determinate quantum corresponds. But it is only when a general equivalent appears as money, hey, uh, just mentioning Sarah's there tri triad, um, just mentioning, as money that one enters into the reign of the quantitas, which can have all sorts of particular values or be worth all sorts of quanta. This abstract quantity nonetheless must have some particular value, so that it still appears only as a relation of magnitude between quanta. It is in this sense that the exchange relation formally unites partial objects that are produced and even inscribed independently of it. The commercial and monetary inscription remains overcoded and even repressed by the previous characteristics and modes of inscription of a socius considered in its specific mode of production, which knows nothing of and does not recognize abstract labor. As Marx says, the latter is indeed the simplest and most ancient relation of productive activity, but it does not appear as such and only becomes a true practical relation in the modern capitalist machine. That is why, before, the monetary and commercial inscription does not have a body of its own at its disposal, why it is inserted into the interstices of the pre-existing social body. The merchant is continually speculating with the maintained territorialities so as to buy where prices are low and sell where they are high. Before the capitalist machine, merchant or financial capital is merely in a relationship of alliance with non-capitalist production. It enters into a new alliance that characterizes pre-capitalist states, whence the alliance of the merchant and banking bourgeoisie with feudalism. In, in brief, the capitalist machine begins when capital ceases to be a capital of alliance to become a filiative capital. Capital becomes filiative when money begets money, or value a surplus value. Quote, value in process, money in process, and as such capital, value, suddenly presents itself as an independent substance, endowed with a motion of its own in which money and commodities are mere forms which it assumes and casts off in turn. Nay more, instead of simply representing the relations of commodities, it enters now, so to say, into relations with itself. It differentiates itself as original value from itself as surplus value. As the father differentiates himself qua the son, yet both are one and of one age, for only by the surplus value of ten pounds does the one hundred pounds originally advanced become capital. Uh, but first, triad. 
Uh, for sure. I mean, come on. General equivalent appears as money. I mean, you jumped the gun a little bit. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you reminded me so I can note SAS just to it's, to it's, this. Uh, they, there's a little crossover there. If, if, if you didn't know, not everyone knows. Uh, Sarah's is kind of in this, uh, this space, but yeah, there's a little crossover. Uh, but it's a wonderful piece here that we're having the discussion all the way around. I'm a really big fan of it. Um, the, I mean, it, it brings us back to your point, Triad. Like, you nailed it, and now I kind of just want to tell people who are listening to the recording, rewind a little bit to Triad, re-listen to it, and that's, the, that's literally what this paragraph's about. <laughs> it's, it's just what this paragraph's about. It's great. Uh, Postgird asks, a quick question, which might not actually apply here. Excellent. But with merchant and financial capital being the handmaidens of industrial capital, are there equivalents in the despotic regime? Uh, his perverts uh, and paranoia, the, the people who go from city to city, um, the, they're not machines, they're people. I mean, they play the role effectively of it, but uh, those to me would be the equivalents uh, in terms of how it functions and how it organizes remotely, how it plays with that, why it plays. Uh, you made the comment earlier of the cynic and the holy man or the pious, uh, and those... I mean, track almost spot on for the uh, people that he talked about during the, they talked about during the despotic uh, socius who would go from town to town, the, the, the perverts, I think is what they referred to them as actually. But the shift, the shift away from uh, people and subjects being the ones kind of doing it, um, uh, who are playing a role within a machine to being machines within machines is a significant shift. Uh, Yes, you could argue all subjects are machines. We have machinic unconscious. I'm more talking about post-subject in the, in the molar regime, the machines that are built. Instead of a subject being a part of and playing a role as determined by their alliances or affiliations or their debts or whatever it may be, the shift to being the machine that is just running stuff that becomes the quasi-cause of all the production that is happening around you or the elements of why you or your town does what you do ultimately the despotic has you know that they have some semblance and when we get to the next chapter this next thing i say will make a lot more sense but the edict of when i uh i write an edict as a despot and uh, my pervert jack uh here who's in the room welcome jack uh he walks around and he's got my edict he lays it out and everyone goes oh cool i'll go do that because it's written from on high again to talk about how representation sort of works within that uh, at the same time, within capital, capital's literally that. And so it's not a person needing to do it, it's a machine that can do it. And now there's an element that's so universalized, yet still written. And there is that representation and the way that these things are so produced become essentially that same sort of uh, element, it feels like to me. Thank you for the, the perverted welcome. Uh, Always happy to have you here, my pervert Jack. Mm -hmm. <laughs> always uh always perverse to be here <laughs> um but yeah i think that's part of the move too right is that um so one of the big things happening here with the advent of capitalism is um phrase i among classical economics is going to be the keynesian economics that Lewis and watery pick up 
So to your point, right, one of the things that's shifting is the multiplier effect, where now it's no longer just prices fluctuating, but you've got some, you know, quanta in that, right? You've got uh, the potential for a whole different um, use of the market as, as multiplication goes, right? And I think what's kind of interesting here is, adding on to your point, through the, um, so if we're advancing from signifier to signified as within the despotic, and now the abstract is going into the referent, right, kind of using a Holland-esque squint here. What's very interesting in, in a certain manner is the way that um, on the body of capital, right, where we find all the appropriation, where everything is re-territorializing, um, you start to, I think, discover that with, with these multipliers and also with um, the way that money is now transferring, well, I shouldn't say money, that capital is now taking over the alliant affiliated, right? You've got a whole new construction there um, whereby, interestingly enough, the, the whole grid is shifting into uh, this affiliated and alliant um, coordination based on the way that everything can, kind of falls back on, well, I should say, capital, that, the way that capital creates the disjunctive synthesis and falls back on the process of production. So what does that mean? Well, that means like, in a sense, right, like he's, uh, like they're using Marx at the, the end there. Um, we're no longer just talking about father and son. We're talking about father and son in terms of surplus value and the way that that actually um, is now possible and perhaps in a sense only immediately possible before we start talking about the BWO in chapter four on the body of capital where the referent um, all the capital is starting to do some very interesting things to bodies, right? Hmm. And I really like this notion, uh, I guess you mentioned it before, Brooks, that we are not dealing with, with subjects anymore that are acting in in uh, a very free or uh, manner or in, in the way an agent would do, so to speak. Uh, but the, the subjects are produced by this exchange, this circulation of capital in this system or in this new body of the socius that is capitalism. Um, and that's exactly what reminded me of, of Sayer here, because uh, when he's asking in the parasite at, um, uh, very much at the end, how uh, is even a collective created or what is a collective? And he's then talking about quasi-objects and quasi-subjects. Um, it is this aspect he's, he's um, talking about uh, with the example of a ferret and, uh, and a ball and with money as the general equivalence, uh, as these jokers that are building up anything with uh, a very highly underdeterminate logic that is very uh, difficult to grasp. So it's, it's this playing of the game of capitalism with this general equivalent of this very undetermined medium of, the, of money um, and of production that is this quasi-object constantly exchanging. And it's not like we are controlling uh, these, these flows of exchange, but we are just um, like um, uh, in, in a play uh, um, with a ball, for example, uh, in, in football and soccer, uh, etc. Uh, the, the players are running uh, in 
uh, relation to the ball uh, that is constantly flying around, uh, passed by, uh, and we try to accumulate it. So uh, this quasi-object becomes that which shapes our behavior and how we uh, act in relation to it. So it is not a Copernican uh, thing, as he says it, but a Ptolemaean revolution again. So we are circling constantly around this general equivalent, and it shapes how we even become a subject, because uh, within this new um, body of the socius, without uh, money or without um, the the uh, capacity of production, you're nothing, you're not even a subject anymore. Uh, uh, what he then, uh, in a very smug way, uh, points to to Descartes when he says that in our times the Cartesian meditations uh, should have been written like uh, something like "I am rich, therefore I am." Money is integrally my being. The real doubt is poverty. Radical doubt is uh, to the extreme is misery, uh, and so on. Uh, so in the capitalist system, the um, the the subject is actually um, what the news, uh, uh, you know, says it's um, it's uh, constructed on the based on good sense and common sense, right? Still, and these are these individuals or and per persons, right, that are just uh, you know actualizations of of the uh, uh, um. Actualizations in the in this world that they're just they're just decoded uh, actualized uh, individuals. There is a kind of a pseudo subject there, right? Of sorts. But for the, there is no there is no subject anyway, is there? No, there's a subject. The subject is produced, all right. It's part of the third synthesis, or if you like to take it, all three syntheses. Um, are the production of the subject, right, in those processes. Yeah, yeah the subject, yeah. The yeah, subject is, is emergent. Right. It is not the, the, the center or the ground of all these actions because it is not anymore the subject, or maybe it w was never the subject uh, of the Enlightenment, of uh, the subject philosophies uh, before, that uh, the, the subject, the mind, and... and um, the, the apperception of the eye is, is the, the sole ground for everything and for, of our freedom. Yeah. yeah, the subject's based on irony as opposed to humor, right? Mm. Well, and this is why I say you got to be a little careful here. The subject is contingent upon the processes of production, which are on the one hand the three processes of the unconscious, right? So the um, the way the unconscious is producing production, distribution, and consumption and consummation, right? Kind of got that conjoining of three uh, of the two terms in that third one. And then you've got the way that um, the paralogisms factor into that process of production, which aren't produced by the unconscious, but affect the unconscious's production, right? So you've kind of got two things going on there. And where that becomes difficult with, especially with capital associates, as we're starting to see this referent, um, again, using kind of a Hollandesk flint here. But, um, you know, we can even take it a little bit further because it's almost going to appear like a double vision. You start to realize that with the subject's production right there is this kind of, um, this is all upon the surface of, of capital, right? 
So it's, that's why the socius plays into this, as opposed to being on the surface of the full body of the despot, the entire, you know, the entire constellation of relationships in the despotic socius, right? That full body. We're looking at it now um, where capital has taken that place. And so hopping back to my point, on page 225, all right, uh, they write, at the heart of capital, Marx points the encounter of two so-called principal elements. On one side, the deterritorialized worker, who has become free and naked, having to sell his labor capacity. And on the other, decoded money that has become capital and is capable of buying it. The fact that these two elements result from the segmentation of the despotic state and feudalism and from the decomposition of the feudal system itself and that of its state, still do not provide us the stringent conjunction of these two flows, flows of producers and flows of money. So going back to that first two, uh, first part of the two, those two so-called principal elements, right? What you start to have is the um, the, the deterritorialized work. Sorry, the deterritorialized worker, for instance, right? So you've got a body there. But you've also got the body in relation to a kind of body of uh, labor capacity, right? Which is how we're starting to see these quanta in that last paragraph. And then on the other hand, you've got capital, right? Capable of buying that um, that uh, quanta, right? So you've got this decoded um, potentiality. You've got the socius that uh, starts to condition things like money to be able to actually purchase that. Um, that abstract labor, right? Uh, and that's going to take you into, again, this kind of double vision where, you know, when you see a worker, right, you always see the worker and the labor capacity, and you also see the dollar and cents involved. And that um, is why it's difficult, I think, to maintain that point about the, the impoverished and the wealth, insofar as everything is only going to be possible through the, the socius of capital, right? Again, the BWO will, there's a huge caveat there, but what becomes difficult is the subject is only, and here's my conclusion for you, the subject will only be possible through the socius of capital here. And that makes this very difficult, but also very interesting. Right, the socius uh, becomes the, uh, what's the, what's called the symbolic order. And uh, it creates the, um, you know, the common sense and good sense uh, that uh, you know constructs what the what the uh, subject is, right? It 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 constructs and organizes production. Um, the way that production interacts out of that representations get built, because I know what you're connecting. You're connecting this straight over to logic, a sense. Because I know I I I'm in the readings with you too, and I don't think you're far off in how you're talking through this. That the I wouldn't say necessarily symbolic order. There's some there's some worrying words with that, thanks to Lacan and a few other people who use uh, those terms. Uh, but instead, if we think about it as the the great machine that organizes and places desire in front of itself, and it organizes society, organizes labor, organizes flows, codes flows, this massive machine that is doing such things. Those elements are what it's doing, and as it's doing so, because it is the effectively the BWO of society, that is what the socius really is, as such, it, through its own sort of emergent properties of as a socius, 
it is able to, uh, or the subject or representations develop outside of that based on the elements and connections it has on its own full body. So uh, the organization of all kinds of elements on the socius, the recordings of, are what lead to the good and common sense that you're talking about that uh, he's deeply so critical of inside of logic of sense. So it's a, there's a few extra steps in the same way that uh, I would say for the subject in the way that he talks about it through AO, uh, how I determine who Brooks is, like the true Brooks, the real Brooks, not just the everyday Brooks, the, the good Brooks versus the common Brooks, you might say, that carries over almost directly to how the socius operates to create good and common truths that everyone seems to know. I mean, God, you don't know such things? That's the natural way. Well, what created it? I don't know. Like it said, uh, blah, 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 did that. Like it, it becomes its own sort of quasi-cause producing such things. Does that, does that answer a little bit, JK? That's my understanding of it, at least. Yeah, I think I, I agree with that. Yeah, it's pretty much. Uh, <clears throat> to uh, borrow from Lacan again, I, that'd be, uh, you know, he has this, uh, uh, the master signifier, right? Is maybe, so he's saying that the, the despotic uh, earth staff is, is, um, is the uh, master signifier that um, perhaps continues Right underneath the uh, underneath the socius of uh, capitalism, oh. uh, you know, in in some form, but in that kind of kind of submerged, you know, latent form. Maybe. I, I think uh, maybe he might have used some of those terms. The the difficulty here is we're talking about like nothing that's transcendent, and a master signifier implies transcendence uh, in in a few ways. Um, so for here, it's it's less that it's more. Um, if we think of everything as processual and machinic, that the elements within, as they're as they're interacting, slamming into each other and working, you know, breaking down fits and starts, starting again, all together, uh, just like desiring machines, it's not one desiring machine that creates a subject. It's the millions of them over time doing, you know, connecting, disconnecting, recording, connecting, disconnecting, recording, and as that recording happens, the next step is an emergent pattern sort of gets created that is the subject. The subject has their understanding of the world that it becomes the their body without organs as things are layered onto each other as uh, singularities are sort of experienced and they become the truths that I lie out in front of me. These ideas become my actual. In the same case, when I have my subjectivity and I'm walking out in the world, uh, uh, the schizophrenic going for a walk, as I do that, if I run into other schizophrenics on the way or other people, as I'm running into other people, those interactions, those connections and disconnections through various forms also record. And if they happen to record in say hundreds of millions of people or billions of them as we have in our world today, the thing that is emergent out of that, just like subjectivity is the socius. And that social grouping, all of us together, also has its recording and its BWO that are singularities that everyone has experienced that then have that appeal towards good and common sense. The whole thing is essentially processual and procedural and machinic from beginning to end without any, like, this was already here or here's how it has to be organized. It's like this comes from, like, it starts from a, a single movement, uh, one rock colliding into another billions of years ago. And then over time, these things start sort of emerging out of such a, a pro process of life. 
That may have been a, a like a version. If I were high, I should probably say that. Maybe that didn't make any sense. That sounded like I was coming down from a acid trip almost. I don't think it's wrong. <laughs> I don't think it's wrong though. I think that's a, a decent summary. Maybe. Yeah, I don't. I haven't smoked weed in like seriously like nine months. Uh, I have no excuse for my ramble just now. No, oh, I'm gonna read the next paragraph. Um, actually, God, I almost don't want to. This is the fucking math paragraph. Um, we're we're losing your grips. You're fighting oh, it out. No, it's because I'm putting my head in my hands because I'm just sitting here like, oh crap. The next <laughs> next paragraph is the differential relations and math shit that my brain can't do. Is anyone here comfortable with this stuff? Because I'm gonna read it and then someone else is gonna have to explain this one because I don't get. Uh, I don't get the math part of this, so I'm hoping someone here is smart. Um, so I'm going to start reading. Um, Before you do that, um, okay. and I, I'm no differential calculus, but I can kind of help out here. Because um, at least, I, from the economic standpoint, I kind of understand what they're talking about. You know, like the Lagrange equation and all that. Um, really what we need is a different rep That's very but. Just to, to go back to your connection logic sense, just be careful there because you don't want to risk identifying the socius entirely with um, the symbolic any more than common and good sense because any paradox and the production of the real, which is desire, right, those have a contingent relationship with the socius. So like, this is what I was saying with like the, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, Maybe loving a critique against um, the, the impoverished and the rich thing, you know, wherever doubt is in that, doubt will be contingent and conditioned by that socius. Now, um, any paradox, any revolutionary investment will be contingent on capital associates for for our purposes in capital associates. Um, so just be careful as you're trying to make those connections, especially like quasi cause coming out of the, uh, the operator section and the place that quasi-cause has in, in logic of sense, you know, um, be, be very attentive to those details because they, if, if you're going to make those connections, which you should, um, there are some, some challenges there because I think one of the hard things about anti-Oedipus um, is that, you know, if we're doing this affirmative critique in that, it's no longer going to be sufficient, um, as in some strands of Marxism and that, right, to simply put down capital, because any way out of capital will be contingent upon capital, similar to how logic of senses inversion of Platonism is contingent upon Platonism, right? But we can go beyond Platonism, but at the same time, that still relies on Platonism, yeah. Uh, the other thing I was going to say is, with the master signifier, Pay close attention to how things work here, like Brooks was saying with the processes, because if we take the master signifier in terms of the the first and second paralogisms, right, where this partial object detaches and now part of the signifying chain detaches and becomes uh, the master signifier, right, first and second paralogisms on that, that will be in relation to the socius, yeah, and that's going to be interesting, especially as we start to see these these abstract, uh, decoded differential flows, right? Which is exactly where Brooks is going to take us. Much to his chagrin. <laughs> yes, to my differential calculus chap paragraph. 
It is solely under these conditions that capital becomes the full body, the new socius or the quasi-cause that appropriates all the productive forces. We are no longer in the domain of the quantum or of the quantitas, but in that of the differential relation as a conjunction that defines the imminent social field particular to capitalism and confers on the abstraction as such its effectively concrete value, its tendency to concretization. The abstraction has not ceased to be what it is, but it is no longer but it no longer appears in the simple quantity as a variable relation between independent terms. It has taken upon itself the independence, the quality of the terms, and the quality of the relation quantity of the relations. The abstract itself posits the more complex relation within which it will develop like something concrete. This is the differential relation dy dx, where dy derives from labor power and constitutes the fluctuation of variable capital, and where dx derives from capital itself and constitutes the fluctuation of constant capital. The definition of constant capital by no means excludes the possibility of a change in the value of its constituent parts. It is from the fluxion of decoded flows, from their conjunction, that the filiative form of capital, x plus dx, results. The differential relation expresses the fundamentalist, the fundamental capitalist phenomenon of the transformation of the surplus value of code into a surplus value of flux. The fact that a mathematical appearance here replaces the old code simply signifies that one is witnessing a breakdown of the subsisting codes and territorialities for the benefit of a machine of another species, functioning in an entirely different way. This is no longer the cruelty of life, the terror of one life brought to bear against another life, but a post-mortem despotism, the despot become anus and vampire. Quote, Capital is dead labor. That vampire-like only lives by sucking living labor, and lives the more, the more labor it sucks. End quote. Industrial capital thus offers a new filiation that is a constituent part of the capitalist machine, in relation to which commercial capital and financial capital will now take the form of a new alliance by assuming specific functions. I suppose I'll, I'll kick it off then, right? Um, so if I remember my calculus correctly, and I again, I do not profess to be a calculus expert, but I'll give it a shot. Basically, what we're talking about with differentials is the rate of change. So we're looking at if I'm not mistaken, the rate of change of variable y versus in proportion to the rate of change of variable x, right? And I'll get to that in a second, which is ultimately going to give us the calculation for the rate of change of flux going on here. All right, so, so far simple enough. So if we go through here, right, so what is y and what is x? Always got to define your terms in math, even when the code is breaking down, like you say, right? Even though we're dealing with some mathematical relations here, um, it doesn't mean that meaning is gone, right? <laughs> but it has changed in the sense it is breaking down because it's right, decoding in that. So we've got, um, so we're out of the domain of quantum and quantitas. My land's never been very good either. Um, but now we're in the differential relation as a conjunction. It's very important because that's right. That's our first synthesis. 
So this differential relationship is going to be the process of production, right? So in our, our stages of production, our syntheses, we're in production, right? Before we get into um, distribution and consummation consumption. So we're looking at basically how two, th well, how on the grid work two things are coming together and the way partial objects are implicated in that, right? So they go on to write, but in that of the differential relations conjunction that defines the imminent social field, particular to capitalism. So it defines the, the social body associates, right? That's our grid work once again. And confers on the abstraction as such. It's effectively concrete value. It's tendency to concretization. So right, we're back to that, like this double vision of things like on the one hand, it does look abstract. On the other hand, it is concretizing, right? The territorialization is taking place and bodies are changing um, as part of this. Uh, so to go right into it then, quality of terms, the abstract itself posits the more complex relation within which it will develop, quote, like, end quote, something concrete. So nice caveat to what I just said there. Again, with the double vision. This is the differential relation, differential of y over differential of x, so just the basic proportion, where the differential of y derives from labor power and constitutes the fluctuation of variable capital. So on the one hand, right, we're back to that deterritorialized labor power. That's like in relation to values in that, right? So we've got the way that that changes, that labor power uh, and its capacities corresponds to the fluctuation of variable capital, right? So the way that, um, so if you take this in a financial sense, your, your variable capital versus your fixed capital, so changing capital versus capital held constant, if you like, keeping it very uh, as simple as we can, and where D of X derives from capital itself and constitutes the fluctuation of constant capital, quote, the definition of constant capital by no means excludes the possibility of change in the value of its constituent parts. So just because we're talking about fits capital, or if we want to keep it simple, fits cost and fits revenue, right? Um, that doesn't mean things can't change within the assemblage, and fits cost can't change, or well, fits capital can't change. But we are basically talking about how capital and its valuation um, even though there's a flux happening, there's um, a fixed element to it, right? And I think this is connecting up with affiliative. Um, yeah, the affiliative. Oh, I'm sorry. It's from the conjunction of this affiliative results. Okay. But just in that, in, in so far as I've tried to sketch out what those two things are, um, is that a comfortable explanation? Are there either criticisms or questions or comments? So I said, like, when you go for job interviews, right, and you're looking at the way that your labor power translates into the market, right, you've got the variable aspect in relation to the labor market, but you've also got the, the fixed elements that um, go into that, right? So the way that those have the potential to fluctuate, and that, that fluctuation itself produces the total flux that becomes the creative here, right? Um I think that's in a nutshell what they're an example of what they're getting at, just in terms of if you've ever experienced looking for a job. Also, please go on. Yeah, could you explain uh, 
the part that says x plus dx, what, is, what does that mean? Right, and that's, and that's exactly where I left off. So um, if you're taking the differential, that's right. So this is your coordinates, right? X-axis, y-axis, what's going on the x-axis is your x, again, for, for our purposes. Um, so whatever x is, you're talking about taking x plus the rate of change of x, right? Okay. And that's, that's going to be your denominator in the ratio, right? So if it's capital, usually it helps to have a constant denominator, um, as we would even say colloquially, right? That's the common denominator in all of, all of this madness, right? Um, they're basically talking about Fitz capital plus its rate of its rate of change, right? Yeah. D of X, that mm -hmm. differential, yeah. producing the uh, affiliated form of capital, which is your grid work. Mm -hmm. mm. So when you derive DX from from X, the the D, the div, derivative of it. It's, uh, you look at a specific variable on the line and it gives you the, the uh, rate, how it, uh, uh, as Jack mentioned, how it changes or how steep the, the curve goes down or up. And by that, you look at specific points and by that, you try to describe the, the, the fluctuation or better the, the behavior of the whole. Uh, segment, so to speak. So you can try to um, look at the different relationships between variables in this sense with, with uh, differential relationships. So how different things change in relation uh, to other things and how they affect each other. So you're not only looking for a specific value, but for uh, how things develop in uh, relation to other things and that's why it's so such a powerful tool in relation to uh, the description of dynamical systems for example in physics or maybe in in medicine uh, in economics and other fields yeah that's spot on because with the differential of x and the differential of y so we've got our two variables which are changing or you know, differentiating yeah uh, well I, I might i don't have the background dnr to say that which are changing and so in that way, right, we can we can work with two variables that are changing while still being able to work with the two variables um, uh, in sort of their X and Y form, right? I'm still going to, I'm going to have to like watch some YouTube videos and, you know, join a, call, a high school AP course on calculus, I think. I just, it's a challenge for me. The math, the math shit is a significant challenge for me. I don't mean to be like perfectly ask here, but you probably already you you, you probably. I, I, I get the idea. Know. Like I get I get the concept here. Like I again I get the concept of the paragraph uh, because mm -hmm. the last time we went through it, the last two times, but especially the first time we went through it, but also this last time, like the discussion we had around this, we dove in very deep. I get the conception here because it's it's about the rate at which quantities change no longer being just a simple addition of this labor added with that flow out you come with why that there's significant growth here that this is part of this is one of the things that stems towards the accelerationist movement the accelerational potential of capital how capital moves how these things flow like i get 
the conception here. I get the implications. I just can't wrap my head literally around the the sentences, and it's a uh, it's a frustrating thing. But the <laughs> it is. I feel you. Yeah. But it's uh, um, so the 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 most important to me. Like this paragraph's great. But again, uh, and thank you all for the explanations. It's helped a little bit, but it's that it's the one line in there, the idea that capital is dead labor and vampire light only lives by sucking living labor and lives the more, the more labor it sucks. The Right. Like that is a that, very that's a beautiful... point I wanted to, to get to because uh, yeah, as they describe uh, uh, this transformation of the surplus value of code to the surplus value of flux. And I really like this, this expression of post-mortem despotism and uh, the despot become anus and vampire. So, so uh, at the same time, uh, uh, it, it shits out this this fruits of the labor and and uh, sucks on it. So we we have um, this this capitalistic notion of not only you trade something like they described before this this cruelty of life. You you lose one thing and you get another. So one has to die, so the other lives. No, it is this. Uh, this thing that uh, capitalism lives off the the labor that is already done and and was traded uh, for something, for example, but it, it really tries to uh, uh, suck on this more and more to to speculate on the future on some uh, exchange to to get out of it more and more, even though uh, nothing more by the capitalist. Uh, itself, so to speak, is produced, but is it's only trying to to suck off the energy from its surrounding and the labor work. Yeah, and, and this is a nice, this is really a nice, um, if I call it a critique, you might be perceived uh, negatively, but it is a nice critique of, of Marxism insofar as it actually expanded the understanding of surplus value here, right? This, uh, at least in my copy, what's, what's italicized uh, the differential relation expresses the fundamental capitalist phenomenon of the transformation of the surplus value of code into a surplus value of flux. So, I mean, at some level, right, the surplus value uh, in Marxism, I think, does have a certain um, flux uh, that it's kind of intuitive. But I mean, especially what's going on here where they're talking about how we've, we're seeing how the socius is going from the surplus value of code because the socius is socii, socies. The socii of old had to deal with right coding and overcoding, where surplus value of coding made a lot intuitive sense, right? To now the problem of decoding, where all of a sudden, uh, with these this new um, relationship of coding and decoding, you have this um, this flux that's possible, right? Like an immense capacity of um, of changeability, if you like, all through what's here, right? Going to be D of, D of Y and D of X, or the affiliative, no, the alliant over the affiliative, right? Or at least what's going to produce the alliant over the affiliative. Let's, uh, at this point, I'd love to uh, just take a moment and because uh, I think we're going to start closing out and continue this paragraph, uh, this next paragraph. We'll move forward into next week because I think it's a there's enough enough left in this uh, at least uh, for us to continue moving forward. Am I? Oh, oh fuck's sake! Yeah, we've got enough room. This is going to take a couple weeks. Um, 
maybe we'll do more next week but we're definitely going to continue from here <laughs>